0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, creator and host of The Rubin Report, David Rubin, discusses his book, Don't Burn This Country. He offers his thoughts on how to revive the American dream and call out woke culture.
1: Freedom allows you to have some responsibility for yourself. That's why individual rights are so important, that what a Western society should do is basically say, hey, if you're here... If you're here legally, then we don't care what sexuality you are. We don't care what gender you are. We don't care what color you are. We don't care where you came from, et
0: cetera, et cetera. He's interviewed by Cato Institute Vice President and Director of Polling, Emily Eakins.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your one per month trial period at shopify.com/tech. All lowercase. That's shopify.com/tech.: Dave, it's great to be with you today. I've been very much looking forward to our interview to discuss your new book: Don't Burn This Country." Um, I know that um, a few years ago you wrote a book, "Don't Burn This Book. And so I can see that, you know, this is kind of of building upon and, you know, kind of evolving um, on that book. And I was hoping that to get us started today, you could talk about what prompted you to write this book.
1: Sure. Well, it's good to be with you, Emily. You know, the first book, I'll start with the first one first. Uh, The first book I wrote really to just lay out my beliefs. Uh, I consider the classically liberal set of beliefs to be the foundational ideas that this country was founded upon, uh, generally speaking, I find them, the ideas of individual rights, of laissez-faire economics, of using logic and reason and limited government and individual choice to be the best way for a free, pluralistic society to operate. And that's really what we were founded upon and the way we've governed ourselves, for the most part, albeit imperfectly, for about 250 years. That was what the first book was about. And then, unfortunately, in the in the two years uh, since the first book was published, uh, obviously, the country has gone in a slightly different direction, or at least a, I would say, in, a, in an opposite direction, to be more clear, an opposite direction than the ideas of individual rights and laissez-faire economics and limited government. We've sort of reversed all of that stuff, unfortunately, and we've gone far more towards collectivism than individualism. So Don't Burn This Country really was, I suppose, an, an obvious uh, follow-up in that, okay, here we are. We, we have a lot of problems. We can kind of all see these problems. We, are, we see our institutions failing. We see a mainstream media that doesn't seem to be analyzing the issues honestly. Uh, but what can you do in your life to fight against it? What are the things that you can do that you can take control of in your own life so that you can live hopefully a good life, hopefully a life that is not constantly fettered by the government and something that Uh, gives you value, uh, allows you to maybe raise a family, live in a community that's in line with your values, and things like that. So that really is what the book's about. In some ways, it's sort of a how-to, I suppose. We almost put how-to in the byline, but then we sort of thought maybe that's a a bit much. So it's uh, how you can not just survive, as I say, but thrive in this situation that we're in right now.
2: You know, that's an interesting thing. Um, in your book, you, you you said something that really struck me. You talked about how ha- starting a family and having children really can reorient us from thinking just about the present but thinking about the future. Um, and congratulations to you, too, by the way. You and your husband, I know that you are expecting two babies later this year. That's Thank you. That's very exciting. Um, and I'm wondering, Thanks. to what extent did, did that shape um, or kind of shape how you approach this book, you know, thinking about the future for your two future children.
1: Yeah, it really did. You know, when I was writing the first book, I was sort of just evolving on the having kids sort of thing. So my husband and I, we've been married for now, it's about seven years, but we've been together for about 13 years. And he sort of always wanted kids. I'm Gen X, I'm 45. When I was growing up, it really wasn't a thing in a certain sense, gay people, like that you would have kids or get married. I never thought about marriage or any of those things. And then fortunately, the, the arc of justice bent more towards equality, and we got gay marriage or marriage equality. And, uh, and then I started seeing a life forming. And then when I was writing the first book, I was on tour with Jordan Peterson, who I'm sure you know of, who is, uh, I would say, the, the preeminent sort of modern thinker of our time. And I was opening for him uh, throughout all of 2018 into 2019, about 120 shows in 20 cities, uh, 20 countries uh, all over the world. And he would often talk about the importance of having children, that basically – You know, you can live a fully actualized life without children, but most people can't. So there are some people that can, and that is not to denigrate those people in any way. They might find all of their full value and all of their worth in whatever their artistic pursuits are or career pursuits or whatever that might be. And some people can have children, and of course there's a litany of of reasons that people do not, and that's not to to diminish any of their lives, uh, but that for most people to fully live the experience of being a human, uh, being a parent is part of that. And then actually after that, being a grandparent, and then if you're lucky enough, maybe being a, gran- a great grandparent is all part of that. Uh, so I was really shifting already, say, three years ago when I was writing the first book. Uh, and then it took some time. Uh, obviously, when you have two biological males, uh, it's a little trickier to have kids than when you have Uh, a male and a female, and uh, it took us some time to to get there, but we do have uh, two babies on the way, which we're very excited about. And yeah, it it shaped a lot of what I was writing about in the book because I have extra pressure to now make sure that the world is good. You know, as someone that was born in 1976, I've lived in a pretty great United States for 40-something years. It, It feels a little shaky over these last few years, but the extraordinary freedoms that I've been given, I mean, really given. My, my two grandfathers both fought in World War II. I have not had to fight in a war. I get to do a show and write books about the ideas that I think can help free people. But I didn't have to go to Europe to help fight for freedom. Um, and, and that's the story of almost everyone in America. Almost everyone watching this or listening to this right now, if you think about the generations before you, you pretty much, if you live in America in 2022... You pretty much have it better than virtually everyone before you in your family. There's very few cases that you don't. I mean, most of us come from the, the experience of having grandparents or great-grandparents, doesn't matter how many generations down the road, where your ancestors came here with virtually nothing. I mean, that's the story that everybody has, whether they're Irish immigrants or Italian immigrants or Jewish immigrants or Jamaican immigrants or Mexican immigrants, doesn't matter where they're from. They come with nothing. They're, they're sort of lower class when they start, and they eventually, hopefully, can get to middle class and then beyond that. And I'm very appreciative of that. I, I really try to honor that from my parents and grandparents and beyond that. And now that's now my duty to protect those freedoms, that, that beautiful uh, tapestry that we have in America where you have a chance to do what you want uh, it's it's extraordinary. It's precious. It's not something that a lot of other countries have. And now I have an extra duty because I'll have two kids to protect it for.
2: Right. You know, it, it, you talk about in the book, this reminds me of something you talked about in the book about, about gratitude. Um, and while it's very important, of course, we all agree to always be pushing for improvement and progress and living more closely to the ideals and the principles of this country, that there really is also a danger in going too far the other way and, and not having gratitude for the opportunities and the freedoms that we have in the U.S. And you talk a little bit about that in your book and that there really is, that there are risk posed by that. Do you want to unpack that a little bit?
1: Sure, there's a huge risk posed by that because as I just said, we, we all know that in America in 22, we really have it so good. There are no laws that discriminate against everybody. It doesn't mean we all have the same amount of stuff. We don't. We don't. Some people are born rich. Some people are born poor. Some people are born to abusive parents. Some people uh, have great physical skills and some people do not. Some people are uh, have great mental capabilities. Some people do not. That's all what the, the tapestry of life is all about. Some people have a lot of luck. Sometimes there's man-made luck. Sometimes it's just the luck of the universe. Uh, but what you have in America is uh, is roughly an equal system that allows you to flourish and as I said earlier, do, do what you want in your life. That doesn't mean it's easy to do and that doesn't mean that you can get it the second that you want it. But the system is set up so that you'll have a chance. We have this great market-based system where if you've got some skills and you work hard, you're most likely gonna succeed at some level. Maybe you're not gonna get the thing that you were staring at when you were 16 years old. You know, when I was 16, I wanted to host The Tonight Show. At that time, it was the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. That's a long time ago. But I remember I wanted to host The Tonight Show. And in my high school yearbook, everybody said, Dave, one day you're going to host The Tonight Show. Well, I'm not the host of The Tonight Show, nor would I want to be anymore. I'm not even, honestly, I'm not even sure who the host of The Tonight Show is. But I do something that's kind of close to hosting The Tonight Show. I do host a daily show, and I own the company that produces it. And I get to talk about Uh, what I think for a living, and I get to hopefully make some people laugh and make some people think. So you have that chance in America to kind of look at something in the distance and go, I kind of want that. And then maybe if you go in that direction, you might not grab that exact thing, but you might get something that's kind of pretty good around that that you didn't even see. Uh, So the gratitude thing, I think, is deeply important because unfortunately right now, so much of what comes out of the modern left, out of the progressive movement and what people call the woke movement is is this anger towards everything that came before us, that it was all racist and it was all misogynistic and it was all homophobic and transphobic, and we can go down the line with uh, the other phrases that they use, and that all the people before them were backwards and their grandparents must have been bad people because they didn't do more to stop it and their parents must have been bad people and all of these things. And, you know, all of us are just people of our time. Uh, We're all going to be judged probably very harshly by the the progressives of, say, 2050. Uh, A guy like Barack Obama, who was a progressive hero, you know, seven or eight years ago, let's not forget, when he ran for president the first time, he was against gay marriage. How do you think the progressives of 2050 are going to look at him? Now, I'm not even judging him for that. That was the standard. That was the standard in human society. For thousands of years there wasn't same-sex marriage that just that just is the truth you may not like it but it is the truth but the point is if we just have a little gratitude that people before us fought and fought hard and died and fought fascism and nazism and communism and socialism so that you'd have a chance to live in this extraordinarily free place that uh, still is the jealousy of the world you know even right now in america for all of our problems People all over the world still want to come to America. And by the way, plenty of them are flooding through our southern border at the moment. Uh, but virtually nobody leaves America. The only people who leave America are usually, you know, like multi, multi-billionaires who want to escape some of the taxes. But pretty much nobody leaves America because of oppression. So we should be, we should be thankful for that. We should honor that because then it helps you honor your ancestors. And then that hopefully will in turn give you a little gratitude for the, for the chance the chance that you got in this country?
2: You know, it's interesting. There's um, some interesting psychological research, um, you know, academic research, that I think really pertains to what you're talking about here. Um, Basically, the idea is that While for each of us, there are things that happen to us that we have no control over. And then there are things that we choose, you know, that we're the protagonists in our lives and that we do choose. And that while life is a combination of both of those things, things that we we have control over and things that we don't, What we choose to emphasize in our own lives has a profound effect on our own life outcomes. And so a a series of studies and experiments have shown that people that focus on the things that they can control in their own lives, you know, being the driver's seat in their own lives, people that emphasize that over the external forces tend to have um, better grades. They're less likely to get in fights at school. Um, they're more likely to have um, higher incomes, better um, relationships with their spouses or their, or their life partners, and they're more likely to change jobs if they're unhappy in the current one that they're in. And so I think that what you're talking about actually has a profound set of psychological consequences that, you know, really is worth, um, you know, taking a look at. Um, but-
1: well, by the way, that's why, that's why people in Western countries generally are happier, because freedom Freedom allows you to have some responsibility for yourself. That, that's why individual rights are so important, that what a Western society should do is basically say, hey, if you're here, if you're here legally, then we don't care what sexuality you are. We don't care what gender you are. We don't care what color you are. We don't care where you came from, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to just even the playing field in that you have equal rights. And again, the 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 gestalt of life, like, We're going to all come from different places, have different traditions. Some of us are going to, some families are going to focus more on education. Some are going to focus more on sports. And as I said earlier about, some are going to come from wealthy families, some from poor. We can't solve all of those things. That's just that's just part of how how life operates, how humans operate. But what you can do if you create those conditions for freedom, and then say to people, you are the driver of your life. You've got a chance to do. To do what you want, as opposed to just being a cog in a system. Oh, here's what you must do in life. You must work for the government. You must work in the field. You must just do this thing because we told you to do it. That's anti-human, actually. So if you say to people, hey, do what you want. Be, be the best musician you could be, the best, the best electrician you could be, or the best ditch digger you can be, or whatever it might be. Um, and not because it's just focused on the job, by the way, the easy way to talk about it always is framing it through the job, but you could have a, you could have a very menial job, find a certain amount of satisfaction in it because you do it hard and you do it well. But what you're really doing is ensuring that you have a decent life so that you can raise a family. And maybe that's really what you care about being a good father and a good provider and everything else. So that's, a, it's just a beautiful thing when you realize you have a little bit of ownership over your destiny. It's, it's a great thing it's a very human it's may perhaps the most human thing
2: yes yeah i think that those are very important points um earlier in our conversation you used a word that i thought would be useful for us to talk a little bit more about because it, it is kind of a central theme in your book um you use the word um woke you know woke ideology or um you know the woke um, machine and I think that um, a lot of people know what that word means, but then there's a lot of people out there that, that actually aren't quite certain exactly how we're defining our terms. So do you think you could take a moment and kind of define some of those words that you use in the book and kind of why they matter and like how, how, you, how you feel they're influencing our society?
1: Sure. I'm glad you asked. It's important to ask. And one of the things I try to do on my show all the time is, is define things clearly so we know that we're talking about it. The same things. You know, it's funny, too, because when I use the phrase woke, um, I'm usually using it to describe what I think are a very bad set of ideas and a a set of people who have prescribed and subscribed to those bad set of ideas. A lot of people proudly say that they're woke. They say that they're woke, meaning they in their minds, they sort of mean very evolved and they really believe in equity as opposed to equality. But let me give you my definition Mm -hmm. first and then we can talk about their definition if you want. Uh, the woke set of ideas right now is what I would say is sort of the mainstream, sort of the corporate press and cultural norm set of ideas that everyone should sort of somehow be judged on their immutable characteristics, that black people must think this and gay people must think this and women must think this. And then you combine that with a little intersectionality so that if you're black and gay and, fee- and female, you sort of move up in the hierarchy of oppression, And that gives you more worth. And of course, if you're, say, straight and male and Christian, now you're, you should be pushed to the bottom. And we should listen to certain people more based on their oppression. And we should punish people more based on their lack of oppression. Uh, that is basically what the woke set of ideas is. And it's sort of, you know, in some ways, it's sort of this um, amorphous thing. It's not like everyone's walking around going, you know, I've got the laminated card. I'm woke. But it's sort of the main thing that culture and mainstream media constantly is pushing on us, this obsession with race and sexuality and gender identity, which is so counter to what uh, not only America is all about in terms of individual rights, as we've discussed, but but again, what being human is all about. None of us, anyone watching this, to me, it is utterly irrelevant, whether you are black or white, whether you are gay or straight male or female, or able or unable, you know, whether you have a limp or not, or whether you're blind in one eye or not. Those are all irrelevant things. We all have things. We all have things. We all have problems, all of these things. Your, your perceived oppression doesn't make you more worthwhile than anyone else. Um, and unfortunately, the system as it exists right now is really pushing that on a lot of young people, which is why so many young people at colleges today are constantly shouting down speakers and angry at, you know, what, they're always angry at old white men and they want to burn down the institutions that a whole bunch of old white men died for to create the conditions for them to be able to burn down those institutions that they go to.
2: So, you know, in the book, you do mention you call you call them wokesters that that they have good intentions. Like a lot of them have good intentions, and it, it almost seems like there might be some kind of concentric circles where there's different types of people that kind of broadly say that they would subscribe to these views, but but they really do come in different. Um, they do take the ideas take on different forms. So, kind of, what would you say to your critics who feel like um, the what how you described it is is not kind of their intention?
1: Sure. Well, first off, uh, the road to hell is is paved with good intentions, right? Most people that do bad things and bring bad to the world, they think that they're doing the right thing. It doesn't mean that you're actually doing the right thing. Uh, but you could turn on MSNBC or CNN or open the New York Times or the Washington Post on any given day. And what you will see if you read between the lines is an endless amount of racism that they have mainstreamed, a constant obsession with sexuality and gender and all of these things, while what you would see more broadly on, on say, something roughly more conservative, uh, is that there isn't that obsession. There is just, hey, we're, we're Americans, and it's not to deny that there aren't problems, uh, but the best we can do is create the conditions for freedom, and then you got to fight for what's yours. That's what America is really founded upon. Now, I get that a certain set of people don't really like that America is founded upon that, but often... And and the reason I try not to impugn all their motives is I sometimes feel very bad for these kids at college campuses. When I've gone, there are many videos people can see of me at college campuses where these kids, I'm talking about freedom of speech. I'm talking about open inquiry and that we should be able to debate ideas. I mean, very basic stuff that we would have all agreed with, say, 10 years ago, things that the ACLU used to fight for, things that a Democrat like JFK used to fight for. Um, And I'm talking about these things on college campuses and they're screaming and they're pulling fire alarms and using noisemakers and all of these things. Now, the kid that's doing that, the freshman at college that's doing that, they think they're doing the right thing. They somehow think that free speech is violence. I mean, these are their own words, that, that speech is violence, although sometimes they'll also tell you that violence is not violence, meaning if they burn down a target in honor of social justice, that's not really violence. But if someone misgenders them that actually is violence. So I I have certain sympathy for the young people who have been confused by these ideas. I think that there's a bunch of sort of race hucksters that have been sort of mainstreamed, the whole anti-racist movement and the 1619 Project and the rest of these people, the idea that America's driving force in its founding was racism. I mean, it's just completely insane. We fought a civil war not too long after being founded to end slavery. Um, We had a black president. You know, there's plenty of European countries that have existed for far more hundreds of years than us that have never had black prime ministers, uh, etc., etc. It's not to say that racism doesn't exist. It's part of the human condition. I wish that it wasn't, obviously. Uh, But I'm sympathetic to some of the people that have been duped by the ideas. And then there's another set of people that do the duping. And then I guess on top of that, there's a bunch of politicians that are constantly doing a shell game of when they need people to be duped to win elections every couple of years.
2: Yeah, it, it is complicated because I do think that there are a lot of people that feel like that they just want equality um, and they wouldn't even argue equality of opportunity. And it does seem like a lot of these terms, people are using the same words to mean different things. And um, I think a lot of Americans want the same things, um, but that there are just kind of these extremes uh, kind of off to the side and the wings um, that have taken a perhaps a disproportionate voice um, particularly those that can, you know, dominate on Twitter, even though Twitter is not a representative sample on the pollster. You know, Twitter's not a representative sample of Americans. You know, you've got a lot of people piling on it's, you it's on Twitter. It's a
1: representative sample of something. I'm, yeah, it's a representative <laughs> sample of something. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what. But, yes, of course, we always have to watch out For the extremes. And, you know, most of us, myself included, we are not necessarily our best selves all the time on Twitter. And it's very easy to own someone or fight with somebody or see a selectively edited clip or something like that. Uh, But for, for the broad swath of Americans that roughly want people to live free, the conclusion that I've come to and that really both of my books are about is that what you would want then is the government to just stay out of the way. That you just can't have a government, you can't only be for government when it does the things you want. You have to basically be for a government that really is just out of your way. And this, by the way, is exactly how this system was founded. It's what federalism and states' rights are about. It's the idea that the government isn't actually supposed to do too much. Unfortunately, over the last, say, century, for sure, The government, especially the federal government, has just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So now all of these people constantly want the government to do things for them. And then when other people get the power, they're very angry that the other people want other things done for them. So to me, the only answer is, okay, that's fine. A bunch of us want a bunch of different things. Well, then we just have to scale back the machine that sits on top of us that is allowing those things and instead put it on us to to help ourselves.
2: I'm so glad you brought this up because it actually reminds me of the part in your book where you talk about your decision to leave Patreon. Um, and I think that that actually is kind of part of this broader conversation about government. I think we'll get to that. But I thought it would be useful if you could kind of describe, you know, what happened with Patreon? You know, Patreon's a crowdfunding service. Um, you and Jordan Peterson, I believe, you both decided to leave at the same time and start your own. Um, that was a considerable risk. Can you kind of talk about what prompted you to do that and and what you've done since?
1: Sure. So I was funding my show, The Rubin Report on Patreon. And as you said, Patreon is a crowdfunding site. So whatever you want to crowdfund, if you've got a couple people that want to subscribe to you monthly, uh, they they're basically the 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 one player that that does that at least at the time. Now there are some other players. That's what this story is all about. Uh, You know, and it didn't matter what you were doing. I was doing a political talk show on YouTube. It was mostly for digital creators. So you might be an unboxer, you might be a musician, you might be a painter or an author, whatever it might be. You got a couple people that want to give you some money. They basically facilitate the ability for those people to give you the money. So create a subscription network for you. Uh, What happened, and this is about uh, three or four years ago now. Uh, was there was another guy on Patreon who I did know. I was one of the first political people on there. Uh, but there was a guy by the name of Carl Benjamin who his, his name on YouTube was Sargon of Akkad. And he was a very popular YouTuber. And he was really sort of an old school British U- uh, classical liberal uh, for the most part. And he did a lot of historical videos and things of that nature. And he was funding his show on Patreon as well. And one day, without notice, he got an email from Patreon that his Patreon channel had been shut down. And this is where he was making his whole living. And he was extremely popular on there. I mean, he was making thousands and thousands of dollars a month. He was supporting his family on there, et cetera. Uh, what had happened was he, they had found out that he had said the N-word not on his Patreon channel nor on the YouTube channel that he was using Patreon to fund, But on someone else's YouTube channel, and not only that, he had used the N-word not to be offensive, not as a pejorative. He had used it to mock the people who use that language. He was actually going after the people on the alt-right who use words like the N-word. And he happened to actually just say the word to mock them for saying it. Well, I felt uh, that this was a bridge too far. The idea that they can shut down your channel... For something that you didn't even do on their site, nor on the YouTube channel that you're funding through their site, that seemed completely crazy to me. Uh, I had already, a year before, had the CEO, Jack Conti of Patreon on my show. And he had assured me personally in my own studio that nothing like this would happen, that they would not ban people over language in a manner like this. And I felt this is just a bridge too far. I, I talked to Jordan. We both decided to close our Patreon pages. That was not easy for me to do. As I explained in the book, my company uh, where I have several employees, my production company, about 80% of our revenue roughly was coming from Patreon. So it was not an easy decision. And over a course of a couple of days, I built a very rudimentary subscription site for myself. And then that really became the the focal point, the beginning, the genesis of Locals.com, which was the tech company that I founded uh, shortly after. And then eventually over the last year or so, we ended up merging with Rumble, which is one of the main competitors to YouTube and a competitor to Amazon AWS, which is Amazon Web Services. It's sort of the underbelly of the internet. Uh, And it's a perfect, the reason I included that in the book is that it's a perfect example of, man, if you see something out there that you don't like, if you see an injustice, if you see something wrong with the business, well, holy cow, in America, you got a chance to do something about it. And I can assure you, Emily, it is not easy to start a tech company. most of, I did not know when I started it that most of my days for the past three or four years, uh, you know, considering I do a show and I write books and I tour and all sorts of other stuff, I did not know that more than half of my day for three years was going to be spent trying to fundraise and strategize and build this tech company. And maybe I wouldn't have done it had I known all that. But that's the beauty of, of doing something. Man, you just throw yourself into something, you try to build something, and then if it's valuable, and in this case it was, well, then, then hopefully some good things are going to happen afterwards.
2: Yeah, I, just, I thought this was very interesting because, you know, as, as we've discussed today in the interview, but also you expound in your book, that um, these concerns that kind of the, the zeitgeist that you're talking about, kind of the woke or collectivist zeitgeist that you describe, has kind of permeated a lot of institutions in society. Um, and that people feel that that, and survey research does show this that many people share your concerns, and for those individuals who feel like kind of these large institutions might try to um, suppress, you know, their views or dissent, um, the you know some people feel that government regulation is the answer, and but your approach was different than that your approach was to kind of build your own. But I know that you've, you've received criticism for that approach too, the, the, you know, the build your own approach. But kind of how do, you unpack, how do you respond to that? How do you deal with those criticisms?
1: Yeah, well, first off, I would say the best approach always is to what we're talking about here is to take the chance yourself and see if you can do it. Build a better mousetrap. There, there's the opportunity for that. Now, I get it. The idea of rebuilding an entire internet or rebuilding an entire crumbling educational institution or whatever institution seems to be crumbling right now, which seems to be almost all of them. These are daunting tasks, but humans do daunting tasks. Great people build great institutions. Uh, So you always have a chance to do it. Now, that does not mean it's going to be easy. And by the way, you know, me starting Locals to sort of replace Patreon is just one piece of the puzzle. We then merged with Rumble, which, as I said, is a YouTube competitor and an AWS competitor. But that's th- those are only a couple pieces. If we're really going to build a parallel economy, you need payment processors so that we're not all stuck on Stripe, which is the main ubiquitous payment processor right now. Um, but I also I, I acknowledge this in the book, too. And I've had many people on my show to talk about this, that there are many ways to skin a cat. So and I've discussed this even with Tucker Carlson on his show where he comes from a position where he wants to use a little more government intervention to break up big tech. Now, you can talk about many layers of that. So there could be, okay. do we want to regulate big tech, meaning quite literally you're going to send government regulators into the offices of Google and Facebook And government regulators, who are probably not the brightest and best, are going to have to figure out what's going on with the algorithms and how they're manipulating us, and they're going to regulate it. To me, that makes almost no sense. It's it's a nice pipe dream, I suppose. The idea that the government could maybe, if the government was only doing good and had the best of the best, could regulate things to make them more equal and fair, I suppose that could possibly work. Uh, Although I think there's, you know, privacy issues and, you know, private company issues that would be problematic there, let's say. Um, to me, that doesn't fully work. I think there's other things potentially you could do that maybe make a little more sense using some of the levers of power, which be, would be that maybe you break up some of the companies. So a company like Amazon, which has you know Amazon that we all shop on, but then also has Amazon AWS, which is basically what every website online is built upon. Maybe those things should be separated. Again, though, I don't love the idea of giving the power to the biggest thing to break up other big things. Usually to me, that just calcifies a bunch of big things. So my personal preference was, hey, let's build something, see what we can do. Uh, but I don't sit here and pretend that that's absolutely a perfect, um, a perfect version of all of this. I think there's probably a couple of different ways. And by the way, I don't really believe in perfect systems in general. I mean, humans are flawed. So the idea that we can all build perfect systems is probably uh, an impossibility unto itself.
2: So you know, th- this does remind me of some of the some polling work that I've done, where there is kind of you know widespread concern about a lot of these tech companies, and um, but the concerns that people have do vary, right? So people on the political left believe these companies aren't doing enough to police what they define as you know false information or hate speech, and then conservatives on the other side feel like these companies are being um, unfair in how they, uh, how they do police content and they feel like their views are suppressed. And so in the survey data, we actually see that most people, you know, do have some kind of concern. It just differs on what. Um, and conservatives are actually more likely to have experienced having their accounts reported or, you know, shut down in some way. And progressive respondents were actually more likely to say that they personally had reported or um, blocked someone on social media. And so it does seem like, given these problems, a lot of people are turning to government, you know, dealing, trying to repeal or change Section 230 if the tech companies don't you know, change their algorithms to you know, affect certain types of uh, information that's being shared. Um, or repealing Section 230 if they are, um, you know, if they don't have, uh, they can't prove that they're unbiased in their content moderation. So there, I just, we keep hearing more and more calls for government regulation. I think you do kind of highlight some of the, the problems with that, I think, pretty clearly in your book. Um, but for people who still are kind of left wondering, well, what next, you know, what do you, for kind of regular people who might not be in a position to actually start something as big um, that could you know, be a, you know, a competitor to some of these companies, what do you say to people like that? What should they do?
1: Well, I think the, the Internet is just a reflection of who we are and what our cultural attitudes are. So the Internet goes through, like most things, it goes through a, ser- a sort of series of bundling and unbundling Usually it starts with something unbundled. So the Internet 30 years ago was like these little chat rooms and these little groups. And then eventually, you know, say AOL came in and started bundling them together and you'd sign on to AOL and you could get access to these things. And then AOL kind of disappeared and Facebook came up and then we had bundling of now you were with your friends and you could be in these groups and you could buy tickets to things and everything else. And then more social media things came and now you could connect with celebrities and all of these things. And I think maybe we're in an unbundling phase right now where we all have to realize that if, if we all got on these things, look, we're, we all have a phone sitting next to us or in our pocket right now, and we're all on these apps that are free, except they're obviously not free, right? There's nothing free. There's no free lunch. What, what is uh, the cost of this thing is that they are buying and selling our data, They are in some ways weaponizing it against us. You know, all of us have the experience of you're literally talking to someone at the kitchen table about a lamp. And then suddenly, next thing you know, there's an Instagram ad for a lamp in your (laughs) feed. And you go, well, how did that happen? I mean, we, we all know these weird things that happen online. And they're using our data and microphones and all of this stuff. And I'm always I always say on my show, it's like I'm not worried about the stuff I know they're doing. I'm more worried about the stuff that I don't know That they're doing. And I think, you know, now with Elon Musk getting involved at Twitter, we may well find out about some of the things that we did not know. uh, And we did know a whole bunch that they were doing over at Twitter. But I would say if you want to take some of the responsibility back, I'll I'll give you a good example. One of the things that we've done related to language uh, and, and hate, quote unquote, hate on locals so, you know, people on Twitter, you can get a free account on Twitter and you can have a million burner accounts and there's no, you can say all sorts of awful things to people and Twitter can either ban you or suppress you or people can block you and all that. Um, but if you break the laws of the United States, obviously you, you have a bigger problem than Twitter. Uh, but one of the things that we did with locals that has almost perfectly, and dare I say perfectly, but almost perfectly dealt with hate is that we made it subscription-based. So people can join the Ruben Report community on Locals. Anyone can join for free, but, and you can view things for free, but if you want to participate in the conversation, you have to pay a few dollars. Now, every creator can set their minimum. For my community, it's $5 a month, but some creators have $7, some people have $15, whatever it might be. What we have found is that if you were to literally just charge a quarter, I mean 25 cents, that people will behave better. So people in my community, I've had no problem with anyone fighting or saying mean things or threatening people or anything else. And by the way, the, the next part of this is, if someone joins my community, the way, it, the way we treat these communities is that, to me, that's you, I have welcomed you into my home. You are welcome to say whatever you want about me or about anyone else outside of my home. But just the same way I would treat a dinner guest, if you come to my house for dinner, you can't just walk into my house and start screaming at me and saying all these awful things, then you can't be in my home. So I, as the creator, so think of it, I'm I'm sort of the mayor of the community. I can kick you out of my locals' community, but, and here's the difference with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and everything else, you're not off the platform. You just can't be in my community. So if you want to be in 10 other communities and you want to abide by whatever their rules are, you can still be there. So I think we've built a system that is a little more consistent with how we all behave in real life. You know, you may behave a little bit differently when you're at the park playing basketball with a bunch of strangers than you would if you were at a nice dinner party at a restaurant. And I think if if we apply some of those principles that we're all doing in our day-to-day life to how how we behave online, I think that can clean up a lot of it. Without having the government get involved or without having a giant system, say a bunch of censors at Twitter or at Facebook, make the arbitrary decisions for us.
2: Right. I think, I think a lot of people really do desire to t- try to reduce kind of these centralized systems of control. You know, t- how do we kind of back away from that? But a lot of people do raise this question. Well, the content moderation is hard. People are often really terrible to each other. It's like that cartoon of Goofy where, you know, nice old Goofy gets in the car and then when he drives, he turns into a monster, right? Like those are people <laughs> online. Um, and so how do we deal with that? And so this is just a very innovative, um, idea, uh, approach that you have taken to try to deal with that um, in kind of a less heavy-handed way of trying to control what people are saying, but kind of it self-selects the people that join the community, they're probably more likely to be a better version of themselves that they've actually paid into it. I bet there's some interesting psychology research to that too. <laughs>
1: Well you because then you're you're encouraging good behavior and by the way, one of the things that I also do that I think encourages good behavior is I don't respond to people on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram. I just never do. I, I it's sort of a I view them as sort of one-way communication. but on when I'm in my locals community, which I go on multiple times a day, I respond to people all day long because we're sharing recipes, we're sharing music, we're talking politics and we're talking about sports or whatever might be going on. But there's a more intimate relationship because these people have a little skin in the game. They said, hey, I want to be part of what you're doing here. The same way you might have a better relationship with somebody who lives on your street, you have a more vested interest in them living a good life because they're on your street and you know if they're happy and living a good life, they're going to take good care of their house. Their house is going to look good. Now your house is going to look good. Now everybody's house prices are going to go up. And that's what I mean about if we just treat these things a little bit more how we live in our day-to-day life because otherwise, if we just leave it up to the censors, to decide what's what, we don't know who these people are. I mean, why are these people never interviewed anywhere? We, we have no idea what their political allegiances are, the nonsense, I mean, I can't imagine. Can you imagine what a horrific job it must be to be a moderator at one of these companies? Not only to see uh, the horrible things that people say to each other, but the horrible images that they post and the illegal stuff and all of that. I mean, it must be, a, I think they've done some studies on this, that it's a really, really depressing job to do that sort of thing. Um, and I just don't think it can really work. The other thing is that, uh, there are tools, you know, if you are getting relentlessly abused on Twitter and trust me, uh, I don't check my mentions that often anymore, but people say all sorts of mean things to me on Twitter or they did at one time, you can basically figure out who to block or mute. And I found that if you, so for me, it usually is a lot of progressive activists don't like me. Well, if you block about 10 of the key ones Well, then they can't send hate your way because they can't see your tweets. And then basically you've cut off, you know, a huge swath of people that otherwise would be spending all day long sending you mean tweets. So, again, even in an imperfect system, you have some tools to take some of the power back to yourself.
2: Right. It is tricky, right, because it shows the importance of kind of the civil and civil discourse, because we do want to encourage kind of open Open conversation with people who disagree with each other to open those, uh, open up those echo chambers. So we're not in just these individual silos. But it's hard when people resort to ad hominem attacks and just being, just being mean, right? Just being mean. And so it is tricky about how to navigate, um, kind of opening up those silos when that is a risk. It does seem like one way to deal with this is to some kind of to have some kind of a subscription model. But that actually does raise another question that you, you do grapple with in the book, which is. You know, we, we don't really want to have these silos, right? We want to be in kind of, we want to be in a situation where people who have diverse views can civilly, right, emphasis on civil, talk to each other about those views and often have uncomfortable conversations. But that's hard to do when people just kind of have to silo off. You know, you know this group is going to use Twitter. This group is going to use Parlor and whatnot. But that does seem to be the way things are going. How do you kind of grapple with some of the pros and cons there?
1: Yeah, it's a tough one. We may just be heading in that direction. And that's what I would say is an unbundling right now. We've all been bundled into these systems. So we had these four or five social media sites, YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter, et cetera, that we got bundled into. And then we realized that the problems within this bundling were extraordinary and almost completely unmanageable. And we may just be in an unbundling phase of the internet, which I understand why that's tough. We don't want to go into our ideological silos and never hear counter-opinions and all of those things. I would say, though, you know, it's been interesting for me because, as you know, I I was a lefty. I was a Bernie-supporting progressive in 2015. Uh, Obviously, I'm not anymore. I I voted for Trump last time. Uh, I didn't vote for him the first time. I live here in Florida. I think Ron DeSantis is you know, America's governor at this point. I, I, clearly, from everything we've discussed here, I, I believe that America is fundamentally good. Our founding documents are good. I believe in freedom and capitalism and all of those things. But one of the interesting things that happened to me over the, say, seven years of my political evolution is I started talking to the people that I thought were the bad guys. Uh, I started talking to Glenn Beck, who I thought was a scary right winger, or Ben Shapiro, who I thought was a scary right winger, or Dennis Prager. The list, the list goes on and on. And what I found was I had major differences with them politically, which I still have to this day. I consider myself begrudgingly pro-choice. Most of them are pro-life, if not all of them are completely Uh, pro-life. They have their own personal religious views on uh, marriage, traditional marriage. I'm I'm married to a man, so that's obviously a tough one for them. Um, I'm still, for the most part, against the death penalty because I don't like giving that kind of power to the state. Most conservatives are for the death penalty. Uh, But I know that I've been able to have these conversations with these guys, not only in my studio and on air and live and uncensored, but I've become friends with these people and broke bread with them and had them over for dinner with their spouses and that we've been able to relish in our differences. Now, the, the difference of that compared to really what seems to be happening almost in every case on the left is that once you've run around calling everybody racist and bigoted and homophobic, which is what so much of the discourse, unfortunately, on the left was, and trust me, I was, I was really one of the first people on the left saying, guys, we have to stop doing this seven or eight years ago, because we are acting illiberally now. Um, once you've said that these people are all racists, you have almost nobody left to talk to, and what you've unfortunately done is paint yourself into a corner and I think that's why so many progressive activists seem so hysterical right now. So much of the rhetoric, even as we're talking right now with all everything going on with this Roe v. Wade discussion, uh, so much of what's coming out of the Biden administration and Saki and Kamala Harris and all of the, the mainstream hosts on MSNBC and CNN and The View, it's it's utterly hysterical instead of remotely nuanced. It's, oh, the Republicans just want to control women and they hate women and they're coming for you and now they're going to come for gays and everything else. Instead of honestly assessing that this is really a state's rights issue versus federal power. And by the way, these are the same people who suddenly believe in bodily autonomy, but two months ago were demanding that everyone get injected with a vaccine. Um, and it's a tough thing when when half of the country seems unwilling to talk I have consistently found that right-leaning people are willing to. That's not everybody, obviously. But I do think there is a fundamental difference. So I don't think this is sort of a 50-50 equation going on right now.
2: Yeah, it it, it can be tricky because it seems like what what I've advised people that I talk to about this is that instead of using labels to talk about substance, you know, instead of saying that some someone or something is racist, to talk about the problem with the policy or the problem with the view that they have specifically and concretely. But it does seem that social media encourages a different kind of behavior because I think people really get that adrenaline rush, right, when they get lots of likes and mm-hmm. retweets and people are kind of cheering them on. And people often don't cheer on nuance, right? They, they cheer on the ad hominem attacks, <laughs> um, which can yeah. make that kind of, to make civil discourse very difficult to be had. Um,
1: you- yeah, it, there, look, it's true. There, there's no doubt about it. And as I said earlier, we often, and I include myself in this, we're not all our best selves all the time on Twitter. It's just how it is. It's what the algorithms have done to us. It's what endless scrolling, you know, you remember probably the old days of the Internet. You'd get to the end of a web page and you'd have to click, you know, uh, click to the top. So that you'd go back, but now we just endlessly scroll. So the whole system has fed itself on more, 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 and that's done some weird things to us.
2: <laughs> it, it indeed has. Um, I wanted to change subjects for a moment, but it, it's kind of related to what you were talking about. You mentioned how you kind of had shifted your views over time. Your views have evolved. And you have a chapter in your book about capitalism versus socialism, um, or capitalism versus, you know, centralized planning of various policies. And I wanted to ask you more about your evolution on that. Now, you described that in the past that you were more in support of things like rent control or the government paying for everybody's college or um, expanding the social welfare state beyond what we have today. But your views have changed a lot. Can you can you talk about uh, talk about that and kind of how? how that relates to some of the broader themes in your book.
1: Yeah, well, the the button answer is these things just don't work. If the welfare state worked, there'd be more people out of welfare, but we know that you put people on the government dime and it creates generational welfare actually. You put people in subsidized housing, and I tell the story of my sister living in New York City on the Upper West Side, my sister and her husband, they both worked in full-time jobs really hard with two kids in New York City in her tiny little shoebox apartment. That's what she called it. It was basically a one-bedroom converted to a two, so you didn't even have a window in the living room. So it was basically dark in the living room all day long. But they had to bust their butts with two jobs, full-time jobs, to make ends meet to pay about $5,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. But half of the people in that high-rise building in New York City were rent-subsidized or rent-stabilized or on welfare. So they were paying for the exact same apartment. Some of them were paying literally hundreds of dollars, 6 or $700 a month, if not less, and were getting other benefits from the government, EBT, et cetera, et cetera. And then what happens is the people that are getting that subsidy, they look and they go, man, I'm paying $600 for this, and maybe the government's even given me the $600 for it. Those people that live in the exact same apartment as me on a different floor, maybe next door to me, they're paying five thousand dollars for it. Why should I get off the government dole? Why should I work harder? Why should I get another job? That has nothing to do with race. That has everything to do with the human condition. If you're just given something in essence for free uh, and it's the same thing that someone else is really working hard for, you're probably going to take that. And then what happens? I mean, this is absolutely a fact. People stay in these apartments generationally, and then sometimes there'll be even three generations of people living in these apartments. Uh, much, much of this I write about Thomas Sowell, who I had the honor and pleasure of interviewing, and he talked about when he got out of college, and he was a socialist, he was a Marxist. And he then started studying what was going on often in in black communities, in urban black communities in terms of welfare, that it was never getting people out of welfare and it was actually trapping people in the lower economic status. And he was working for the government and he brought this to the higher ups and they basically said, no, 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 We don't, we don't want to deal with that because the government just wants more government. It wants more money in the government. It wants more money for the contractors and all the people. It's sort of what uh, that orange man called the swamp, that there's just this machine that operates and they want more money for the machine. So the the simple Peter Thiel, uh, who I've had on, who of course was the the founder of PayPal and the original investor in Facebook, he once said to me, I wouldn't be a libertarian if any of it worked. And I think that really is it. That gets to so much of it. Um, There are reasons to want to help people. Of course there are. And by the way, conservatives and libertarians generally help people through charity or volunteer work. Um, But if the machine really worked, if we had a slim trim government that really worked and there were programs that really lifted people out of welfare and that maybe could help people get a higher education so they could get a better job, so they would be better off than their kids were, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, than their parents were, um, then sure, I, I would be for that system. It's just not the system that we have, and I don't know that we can recreate that system anymore.
2: That's interesting, yes, and I guess it does kind of connect with some of the broader themes of your book, because it seems like your critique is with kind of these centralized systems of control, and that can be found when it's government planning, Um, you know, a lot of these policies, we wouldn't say that they're socialism, but they're socialistic planning, Um, that the government can't set rents correctly. It's just not going to work. It just destroys, it destroys cities, it destroys communities. Um, that kind of thing. But then there's also these systems of control that can be outside of the government. And when they're centralized, that they also have problems. So I guess that was kind of the common thread there that you were that you were saying.
1: Yeah, it's it's big things above us. You know, mm -hmm. the the founders were what the founders were always worried about about big government, right? They, They had fled a tyrannical monarchy that that for the especially for the original people that were here in in a new america what was to be a new america they were you know they didn't want to be taxed without representation right the boston tea party then then they realized boy there is a big, if we just give power to a big system, a big system will always want more power. It will always want more money. It will always want more control. The founders could have never imagined that, you, that there could be something even bigger than government. And that's sort of what we got with big tech. So it doesn't matter if it's government or tech or something that we can't even think of right now. Uh, you want to hopefully give as much power back to the people. And that's really what decentralization and, and individualism is all about.
2: Yes. Um. We have a few minutes left, and there was another piece that I really wanted to, to talk to you about. Um, and this is about you talk a lot about conformity in your book, and I noticed very early on in your book you actually cite some re- some survey research that we did um, at Cato that found that about two thirds of Americans are self censoring their views, and that uh, and there's actually reasons for that. We also found in that same survey that a, a quarter to a third of Americans would support firing. Their colleagues at work over their political donations, about a quarter would fire Biden donors, about a third would fire Trump donors. Um, and that was really striking. Um, and that does, you know, this, this idea that, that Americans are self-censoring. I wanted to know, you know, that came out in 2020. You started writing this book in 2020, and here we are in 2022. Have things gotten worse? Have things gotten better? Have they moderated a bit? What do you think about those trends?
1: I would say for the most part in the year and a half uh, before the book was published, things got worse. Then we had over the last month or two, we've had a couple of really nice wins in America. I mean, Elon Musk getting involved in Twitter to say, hey, I want this to be a more open platform and I want it to be more even handed and more transparent. And I want a plurality of voices on here. What a great win. Now, he has to fully get the deal and he has to actually do some of the things he's saying. But I think that was a real win For the idea that we can exchange some ideas, honestly, that hopefully we can be on some of these platforms and accept that there is a difference of opinion and not do what you're worried about, which is that siloing of opinion. So we got some wins there. Uh, We got some wins, say, here in Florida with Ron DeSantis fighting against wokeism in schools that he has done so effectively, not because he's a bigot or a racist or doesn't like gay people or anything else, but because he wants the parent to be the ultimate decider in, in what the, the student is taught. And he doesn't want personal issues to be brought into public schools, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We got a huge win in the last month when Judge Mizel, a 35-year-old female Trump-appointed judge in Tampa, said, hey, no more mask mandates on planes. And then what happened the next day? Everybody ripped their masks off. This was just a few days uh, after Fauci had said, that he wanted to keep them on planes and they had just extended it for another two weeks. It's always two weeks and then it becomes two years. Uh, but one judge said no more. And then everyone ripped it off. And I, I then went on tour for, the, for two weeks after that. And I saw happy people on planes again. And guess what? We haven't had a crazy spike in COVID. We're actually not even talking about COVID anymore. So I love this idea of one person standing up, saying what they think, which gets ex- to exactly what you're talking about, that we're all afraid to say, what we think. And yet we find when one person says, hey, I want to get involved in, and fight for free speech. Elon Musk. When one person says, hey, I don't want children to be indoctrinated. Ron DeSantis. Then suddenly people agree. When one judge says, hey, no more with this anti-science mass stuff. Everyone agrees. So there are some wins that are happening right now, but it's just one person. These are all just one person. And every single person watching this, you and myself included, can do something in our life to stand up a little bit more. And that's the only way this thing gets course-corrected. It doesn't get course-corrected uh, by politicians. You know, it, it can have a a course-correction by a politician, but it can't fully be corrected by a politician. It can only be corrected by you.
2: No, thank you. That Actually, you, you cite some very interesting neuroscience in your book about that very thing um, and showing how that when one individual, you know, said something that they thought no one else agreed with. As long as there was one other person that said something too, that dissented as well, that that really gave that person courage. And it seems like that's what you're describing describing right here. Um, So we've come to the end of our hour. It has been a pleasure to be able to speak with you about this book. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon.
1: Emily, it was my pleasure. And whether we agree on all of this or not, I'd be happy to do it another time.
2: Wonderful.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers' lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.